0: Welcome to the National Treasure Hunt podcast, where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey.
1: And
2: I'm Emily.
0: And we have made it, Emily, to the 10th episode of the first season of our show. Where has the time gone?
2: Oh my gosh. How have we made it this far this quickly? It feels like just yesterday that we started
0: I know. I think we've been having a little bit too much fun. And you know what else, Em? It's probably worth mentioning to the listeners that this is not only our 10th episode, it's also the final episode of our first season. (coughs) But y'all can't get rid of us that easily. We do have our second season of this show planned. It's mapped out. We're starting to work on it. It's coming your way in a few months. But we're not going to tell you when it's coming until the end of this show. So you're going to have to stick around through the entirety of this episode.
2: Yeah, a little uh, motivation for you guys. But honestly, I don't think you're going to really have a problem sticking around for this episode. This is kind of a special one. We got to talk to two wonderful people that work at the National Archives. Aubrey, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what this was like? Because you really helped to orchestrate this.
0: Well, um, we reached out to the National Archivist of the United States um, because that's a thing you can do. Yeah, And uh, he very kindly put us in touch with the two folks that you're going to hear from today. More on that in just a few minutes. But really, before we dive right into that interview, I think it would be fun to um, maybe talk about why we wanted to do this episode and kind of set the stage. So, Emily, I think you've mentioned pretty astutely in at least one of our past episodes that... There's a real question here with the National Treasure film about what the actual treasure in the film is, right? I mean, you might say, well, the treasure was the Templar treasure. And, well, you'd be quite literally correct, right? Seems obvious. (laughs) But there's also an argument to be made that the real treasure in this movie is the Declaration of Independence. Do you want to talk about that a little more?
2: Yeah, so, you know, I think that, when you really look at the movie, right, like, obviously getting to the treasure was, like, the main thing, right? And it was it was hard. They they had to jump through a lot of hoops. They had to, like, do the run-ins with the FBI. I mean, Quite Nick Cage. Quite
0: literally, yeah. Yeah,
2: Nick Cage <laughs> had to, like, jump off a boat. there There, uh, there was a lot that happened. But... The honestly, like the hardest part of the entire film was really getting the Declaration of Independence. When you think about it, the first half of the movie is really devoted to just getting the Declaration of Independence, and probably the most quoted line and definitely the most memeable line from the <laughs> film, which is, I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. And you know, so I think. A lot of in a lot of ways that, you know, like highlights its importance. But something that I wanted to note is that you'll hear in the interview, our two guests also kind of uh, allude to this. And when we interviewed uh, Charles Seegers, he alluded to it as well. The founding documents like the Declaration of Independence, they really are pun may may be intended they really are national treasures, right? Mm -hmm. They're what make this country. And I think that in a lot of ways, that was really the key to the entire movie. And, you know, I don't know, it gives me chills just thinking about it.
0: Definitely. I'm glad you brought up our interview with Charles too, because he clearly has a lot of respect for these founding charters, the declaration being, you know, one of them, right? And he was—he made it really clear that one of the inspirations for this movie was the fact that he would go to the archives and not see lines out the door, right? And, and he wanted to kind of up interest in our founding history. And so, of course, that results in our favorite film, National Treasure, where the Declaration of Independence ends up being utterly abused over the 24 to 48 hour sequence of Mm -hmm. the of the plot so we respect the the document by disrespecting it in this very unique case so we thought today it would be really interesting to go straight to the source straight to the national archives where the declaration is stored and protected and preserved to find out Just how Ben's actions would have affected the Declaration if this heist had happened in real life. And, you know, in the process, maybe we could learn a little bit about how historical documents like the Declaration are preserved and protected in real life. And so that really is the motivation behind today's episode And I think the conversation is something that our listeners are really going to enjoy, both from a fascination perspective, but you're also going to learn something today, too.
2: Yes, you guys are definitely going to enjoy it. I know Aubrey and I did. And when you do enjoy it, do not forget to hit us up on the social medias. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Podcast. You can find us on any and most of your podcast streaming services, be it Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, subscribe, rate, review us, whatever you can do on any of these various platforms. Interact with us on social media and tell us how you guys like this episode. You know, like Aubrey and I are saying, we think you guys are really going to like it, but we want to know... You know, if you guys think this is cool, too, because if you do, this is something that we can definitely try to do more moving forward in future seasons.
0: Oh, yes. And so, Emily, I think we shouldn't put it off any longer. Let's introduce our guests, Amy Lubick, Supervisory Conservator, and Mark Ormsby, Heritage Scientist at the National Archives and Records Administration. So the National Archives, a.k.a. the home of the Declaration of Independence. All right, so we are thrilled to have Amy Lubick and Mark Ormsby with us today here on our show. They're going to be able to help us answer some of the long-standing questions that National Treasure viewers have about archives after watching the film so amy and mark welcome and thank you for joining us i'm hoping that before we get into the nitty-gritty of national treasure perhaps the two of you could start by introducing yourselves and what you do at the national archives and
1: records administration or nara so i'm amy and i'm a paper conservator and supervisor in the conservation laboratories at the national archives facilities in College Park, Maryland, and Washington, D.C.
3: And I'm Mark Ormsby. I'm a heritage scientist in the Heritage Science Lab at the National Archives. And just for some context, uh, heritage science is a term that's used mainly in Europe, but a little bit more, it's catching on more in the United States, and a term we've adapted that uh, refers to using science to help preserve things, whether that's documents or motion pictures, statues, paintings, uh, historic buildings, the whole field.
0: Awesome. And as as a quick follow up, can one of you explain to our listeners and really maybe to me (laughs) the relationship between NARA and the National Archives that someone might visit down on the National Mall?
1: So NARA is the, the acronym that we use for the National Archives and Records Administration, which is the complete title of the federal agency. And we say National Archives for short. Uh, that is very helpful.
0: <laughs>
3: our two main facilities, we have the facility, the building downtown on the mall, where the national treasures are at, where the film is depicted. Uh, Amy and I work primarily in our other building in uh, College Park, Maryland, it's called Archives Two, and we have facilities all across the country, uh, including presidential libraries.
2: Oh wow, that's super cool and something I definitely did not know. So thank you for that. Um, I kind of going off of that a little bit. It sounds like you know you you guys cover a lot of ground really with all of the different. Uh, institutions that you are uh, located at. So I was wondering if you guys would be able to give us some examples of the historical documents that are kept at the National Archives and why you think it's important for these documents to be protected.
1: So some of the the key historical documents uh, of course include the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Articles of Confederation, and the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, And and we feel it's critical for these documents to be protected because they are the original records uh, deemed most significant and therefore part of the National Archives permanent holdings uh, that document the activity of the United States government. Approximately 3% of the records that are created by the federal government are permanently valuable. And 3% may seem like a very small number until you think about the total number of records that are created by the United States government. And the number of of permanent records is constantly growing. Currently, the National Archives has over 15 billion pieces of paper. And paper is just one format or or one type of of record that NARA holds, but there's also billions of electronic records and millions of other formats, including motion picture film, cartographic holdings of maps, charts, and architectural drawings. We have sound and video recordings, aerial photographs, still pictures, and three-dimensional artifacts. Wow. Wow. (laughs)
2: That's definitely a lot more. I know that that probably should be very obvious to us when we think about all the kinds of documents, but I think I speak for both Aubrey and myself that when we think about the term like documents, we, we tend to think of just pieces of paper, but it makes complete sense that there would be other uh, media and stuff as well. Um, as kind of a follow-up to that, thank you for all those uh, wonderful examples. Do you guys happen to know what the oldest document that is kept at the National Archives is?
1: The answer is a little bit complicated because Um, Technically, the oldest document created as a government record at the National Archives is the extract of royal ordinances for the Danish American islands that dates to 1672. And and the reason why that that particular document is at the National Archives is because it was created by the government of the Virgin Islands, Um, while the islands were a Danish possession, but then the document was acquired Uh, by the United States when Denmark was sold um, when Denmark sold the territory in 1916 but we do have other much older um, examples and some of those include gifts to the presidents Mark Mark mentioned the presidential libraries um, and also evidence um, that was sent to the state department but these examples are not um, government written records per se so Um, Franklin Roosevelt was given uh, a 24th century BCE cuneiform tablet. So that certainly is is much older than the 1672 um, extract of royal ordinances.
3: Several years ago, my colleague uh, Maggie Kelly uh, got connected with some people who were um, researching the transit of of Venus, which was an event about 100 years ago that um, when the Venus crossed in front of the sun, it provided a way to uh, measure the diameter of the sun, I believe, or the earth to sun distance very accurately, I can't remember. Uh, So there was a worldwide effort to make measurements of how long that took and the different positions around the globe, including um, this wonderful story of a, I believe it was a girls preparatory school in South Africa. And they set up. They had an observatory. The U.S. sent uh, some astronomers over there, and this group uh, was able to contribute to this worldwide scientific effort. And so we have—I believe we still have some of those plates. So technically, the oldest information we have is from billions of years ago, from the starlight that's recorded on those glass plate negatives. So, just to be technical about it, that, thats probably <laughs> the oldest information we have.
0: That's awesome. And something that Emily and I can also really appreciate, we're both scientists by training as well. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. That's, that's actually really cool. Um, because National Treasure focuses on historical documents, specifically, I'm wondering what you can both tell us about the basics of preserving historical documents. So maybe what factors are important to consider when you're doing preservation, whether that be, I don't know, I don't, I don't work in this space, so I don't know if the type of paper, if you will, or the ink or the age or, you know, what goes into that?
3: Well, maybe I can start with kind of the the big picture because we have such enormous holdings, we can't possibly treat everything with the kind of attention we give to our top treasures. Um, But the most basic thing we can do is to provide good environment for them. And that generally means lower temperature, lower humidity. So um, typically, uh, we want, like for paper records, our specification is to try and have them, have the highest temperature in those storage areas to be 65 degrees Fahrenheit. And lower than that is better because lower temperatures means lower rate of chemical decay reaction. So we can slow down those reactions and at the same time, higher humidity, the more moisture is generally the faster those reactions happen. So we want to keep the humidity low too. So we typically aim for a 30 to 50% range. We don't want things too dry because then they become brittle, they become more fragile. We don't want them we don't want the humidity too moist because um, that can cause other physical damage and it also raises the risk of mold so generally on on the big scale we want things cooler and drier we also try and limit pollutants Um, so in washington dc and we've got a lot of tourist traffic a lot of buses that sit idling near our building so we try and limit the pollutants that come into the building And we also try and limit things that might come from the the records themselves. So that could be, as paper degrades, it gives off certain chemicals. Um, As film degrades, it gives off acetic acid. And those can contribute to other degradation. And we want to be careful about what we put the records in. So we want to use good quality paper. We don't want to put tape over everything. When we do use adhesives, uh, which we do need to use, we've had a an effort for several years. Um, Amy knows more of the details about this than I do, but uh, there was an adhesive that had been used for years in the conservation field that the manufacturer no longer produced. So uh, the archives in a collaborative project with the Library of Congress, uh, working with scientists and conservators, um, they looked at different combinations of different adhesives we could use um, evaluating them by how the conservators felt they worked for what they needed to do and also um, looking at the, trying to understand their aging properties so that we could develop new adhesives that would hold up over time wouldn't cause further damage so it's a combination of the big picture of the environment and also paying a lot of attention to what goes into the folders, the boxes, the exhibit cases that we use, and trying to control things on that end.
0: When you're when you're thinking about some of the more, the national treasures as you call them, the founding documents, et cetera, um, what if any special factors or considerations go into thinking about how you preserve those?
1: So, from the conservator's um, you know perspective. Um, we definitely look at uh, what the document is, is made of. So that in, inherent bites or the materials that were used, for example, in the fabrication of a piece of paper or the ingredients that are are used in an ink recipe and how they factor into the long-term st- stability of that document. So are those materials somehow contributing to the deterioration of that object? And is there something that can be done, as Mark mentioned, to slow down deterioration by? looking at environmental conditions, um, storage materials, or the basic care of that record. Um, As a conservator, so we we might um, intervene in the way of performing a conservation treatment. um, And by doing that, extend the life of that document uh, or might be able to make the information on that document accessible if it wasn't previously accessible. Um, maybe a, a brittle paper document is rolled so tightly, and it's been repaired with pressure-sensitive tapes that it can't be safely unrolled to read it. So we have to weigh will any potential risks that might be associated with conservation treatment outweigh the benefits to that record? That's really that's really interesting.
2: Yeah, um, and I mean the rolling up uh, is something we're going to come back to uh, in in a few questions. But um, while we're on this. Uh, you were mentioning the type of paper, uh, the type of ink and stuff. Is there any document that you guys work with that's particularly challenging to work with due to any or, you know, all of these factors that you just mentioned?
1: So Mark talked about mold, mentioned mold. And and I have to say that I think some of the documents that present the greatest challenges are those that are severely mold damaged, also pest damaged, um, or, um, you know, just are brittle again from, you know, potentially that inherent vice or, you know, the storage conditions. Uh, Also, um, you know, some of the more challenging treatments that I worked on are where paper is perforated due to um, iron gall ink corrosion, where the ink has actually um, eaten through the paper.
3: One of the most challenging ones I ever came across uh, was Several years ago, uh, conservator Kathy Ludwig was working with a group of records from the Panama Canal construction, and they were just incredibly brittle. And we didn't really understand why. Uh, We thought maybe, you know, obviously heat and humidity in Panama is high, but these really stood out. And we thought, well, maybe because they were trying to control malaria there, which was a huge problem, that maybe they had been treated with some somehow. Um, we tried to do some different examination to see if we could identify something that might indicate that, and didn't really get any conclusions. But that's a type of odd question that comes up occasionally. You know, something that really stands out is, you know, we know it's maybe poor quality paper and been in poor conditions, but it just stands out as something really, you know, unusually severe, and we try and understand, you know, what is the reason for that.
2: That's really interesting, um, that, that, especially the question of the was it treated for anything due to, uh, you know, them trying to prevent malaria there and all of that kind of stuff is really, that's really great. Um,
0: especially as scientists, we can appreciate that <laughs> <yes>. inquisitive mindset.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm sorry if I sound like I'm fangirling a little bit here, uh, but all the science is making me very happy.
3: Um, we get so- groupies all the time. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, So you guys have already talked about uh, the importance of temperature and humidity and other kinds of environmental factors, but what tools specifically or techniques are commonly used to preserve documents?
3: Um, Well, I mentioned um, like with the Panama Panama Canal documents, we tried some different techniques to see if we could find a clue about what might have happened to them. So in our lab, we have uh, an infrared spectrometer, an FTIR, um, which Jennifer Herman, my colleague, typically typically operates. We have a gas chromatography system um, and we use a particular technique that's very nice. It's non-destructive, doesn't use solvents, and uh, it's called solid phase microextraction as a method for, for collecting samples. And that's been very helpful um, Jennifer also does work with, uh, X-ray fluorescence. Um, so like working with iron gall ink, if there's a question about, um, you know, identifying things, we can ident- identify the iron. Jennifer was involved several years ago in a case where, uh, a researcher had come in and claimed that he had found, uh, a pardon that Abraham Lincoln had written, Uh, It's been a while, so I may have the details wrong, but I believe it was the day he was assassinated. So obviously, you know, kind of a uh, major story there. And so he publicized this, and there were some suspicions. The archivist had some suspicions about this and went back and checked, and there were some signs that maybe this had been altered. And um, the date was changed from, I believe, 1864 to 1865 so going from a year before he was killed to the day of. And Jennifer was able to show that whoever did this alteration had done some, done some homework and had tried to mimic iron gall ink, but Jennifer was able to show by looking at certain ratios in peaks uh, in the X-ray fluorescence spectrum that the, the ratio of those peaks in the Uh, The number five was not the same as in other nearby letters. So normally we don't get involved in anything like counterfeiting or anything like that. But because the statute of limitations for anything on this had passed, um, it wouldn't be a criminal matter. But for our own purposes, Jennifer was able to clarify that. So...
0: What a cool story. Oh my gosh. And you know what? I have to say, since we are the National Treasure Hunt podcast, this feels very National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets to me, <laughs> with the the Abraham Lincoln angle and the fact that someone's coming forth with a piece of history related to Lincoln that no one had seen before. I've just got to say, just, I'm impressed.
3: <laughs> well, you can get Jennifer on a future episode. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um so I know that uh you just mentioned a lot of uh tools that are used and a lot of these were um you know physical tools uh as well as obviously the gas uh chromatography and stuff like that like Aubrey and I both know that both of them involve digital components as well but are there any other types of digital tools that you guys use to complement the physical preservation techniques?
3: Um well in in conservation we um Use a lot of different types of techniques. So, um, you know, in our in with our staff, it's uh, primarily X-ray fluorescence, uh, FTIR, uh, gas chromatography. Uh, we've also done some near infrared spectroscopy, uh, visible visible light and ultraviolet uh, microscopy and spectroscopy. Um, we do color measurements with a colorimeter. Um, And in other labs, depending on what people are working with, they may use use all sorts of different types of techniques. If we get into really detailed study of paper, um, we can use size exclusion chromatography. Um, We have that capability in our lab, but just haven't had the time to really develop that. But it is used a lot in the field. And there are a lot of other techniques. Um, And... um, we, like in our uh, St. Louis, our nas- the National Personnel Records Center had a terrible fire in 1973, I believe it was. And a lot of records were lost. A lot of them are fire damaged. Um, and they're very important because veterans need these records to make claims to receive benefits. And so even though there's this massive volume of records that are burned... We still have them and they, they are still used. And there was an effort uh, in the past couple of years to use some um, imaging techniques to try and recover some text from charred regions uh, of documents. Um, and in some cases, that's enough. They're able to recover enough extra information that it makes the difference between a veteran being able to prove uh, his service, his or her service, or, or not. So, um, there are a lot of different techniques are, uh, we have a, a scanning lab, um, our photographic motion picture labs, our audio preservation labs, they use all sorts of techniques. Um, and a lot of it is moved to digital, not necessarily because they preferred to do that, but, uh, when you can no longer buy film stock, when you can no longer buy magnetic tape, you have no choice, but to go to. Uh, a digital format. So, um, you know, there, there's a big push in that direction too. And the benefit of that, of course, uh, if you're able to make it available online, then people don't have to come f- by themselves. They don't have to come to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., or presidential libraries or other facilities around the country. We're able to provide more access, and it also reduces the amount of handling that. Uh, the records have to go through
0: that. I think that makes a, that makes a lot of sense to me. And honestly, you know, what you just said about people not having to come to Washington DC to see a particular artifact, et cetera, that, um, that really speaks to me because that's one of the reasons we want to do some of these interesting deep dive episodes, you know, so people can learn about these things in a new way um, without say, if it, say if they can't come to visit especially given the current times that we're in. So so that that's really cool. And so I think all this background is really helpful, I know, to to Emily and myself, also to our listeners about the gist of what you do. And it really sets the stage for why we are here today, which is to begin talking about our favorite film, National Treasure. And so to get started here, I just have to ask the both of you, have you seen
1: National Treasure and how did you feel about it? So, yes, Mark and I both saw it, and I have to say that um, I enjoyed it, and I had fun watching it um, with my husband and my 12-year-old son this past year again, but that I still cringe when I see Nicolas Cage take the declaration and roll it up and drop it into the storage <laughs> tube, and, and for some reason, anything that happens to the document after that um, initial rolling and dropping into the tube doesn't, you know, doesn't shock me as much as that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness.
3: Um, Yeah, well, the first time I saw it, um, we actually, I was in the vault um, at Archives 2 with, uh, I remember my colleague Maggie Kelly was there and she had found the trailer online. And this, you know, was a long time ago when you, you know, it was a big deal to actually watch a video online. And she probably had to download it. It probably took a couple of minutes, and then we had to play it back. And we watched the trailer, and we're just laughing. <laughs> <laughs> we thought, this is so over the top. You know, this is just unbelievable. And then it goes out, and it's the number one movie in the country for several weeks. Um, so, yeah, I saw it. Um, And then I saw it when it came out and then um, watched it with my kids a few weeks ago. And um, it's over the top, but, you know, I've watched plenty of escapist movies during the coronavirus shutdown. So that's fine. Um, I have to say that I remember when I, like Amy, whenever they would roll them up, roll the document up, I would cringe. Even though I was well aware it's just a movie. (laughs) But it's just a gut reaction. Sure. But this, but this time when we watched it a few weeks ago, I had this flash of anger when Nicholas Cage has got the document, and um, I, th- I think it's it's either before, right before or right after he gets you know shot and holds it up to protect himself. But <laughs> he's got it. He's got a drill and he's taking out the the bolts, and. I had this flash of anger because um, I was afraid he's going to strip the threads. Ah. And that is such a huge problem, you know. And I put those in by hand with a torque wrench, a calibrated <laughs> torque wrench, along with Maggie Kelly and Charles Tilford and Mike McLaughlin. And it's a long, tedious, very exact process. And there was just, I just had this sudden flash of anger like you're going to screw this up and make a big <laughs> problem for us so and then uh, i had okay it's just a movie i know but that was my reaction this time around
0: that is so funny and another really amazing story you know emily and i recently uh, got to interview the creator of the film franchise his name is charles Seegers and he was telling us about the inspiration behind the film for him. It actually came from a a visit that he had to the archives when he was researching another film project he was working on. And one part of that inspiration for him was noticing and being really sad that there weren't just tons of people lined up to see these important historical documents. And so that leads to a quick follow-up question that I have, which is really, at any point in time, did you feel like these films increased interest in historical documents or sort of the work that you do?
3: Well, I know the archives promoted it a lot. um, And I found something for the 15th anniversary, they had a showing downtown to tie into that. And, and, uh, you know, I think everyone enjoyed it. Um, One thing I was just thinking about today was that um, I don't remember when the movie came out. Um,
0: 2004.
3: Okay, so the archives would have been reopened by then. So, uh, when the documents were taken out of the encasements built in the 1950s, the building was shut down for a couple of years for renovation. And um, one of the benefits of that was that we had a lot more exhibit space to use after the renovation, because before that, we had the rotunda where the the charters are shown and there was some exhibit space there. And then there was a small circular gallery that kind of wrapped around. It was like a narrow hallway that wrapped around the outside of the rotunda. And that was about it as far as exhibit space. So you came to the national archives to see the charters, um, and that there wasn't a lot more to see there, but now we have much more space. And we can tell a lot more about the archives. We have the Record of Rights exhibit, which, um, you know, you look at all the headlines going around this summer about civil rights, uh, 19th anniversary of, I mean, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, all these issues, um, racial and social issues, justice issues. We have an exhibit that covers a lot of history of that. Um, There was an exhibit on... The Vietnam War, um, the um, you know a lot of current topics we're now able to explore the background, and so I think maybe one of the reasons. I mean, we've all as long as I've worked here, which is almost thirty-one years, we've always had over a million visitors a year, but I think now we're able to draw draw pe- even more people in, and tell a more more complete history, so that. Um, it's not just the charters, it's all the other records that we have. So hopefully that, um, along with the National Treasure, the movie, maybe people get to see uh, a little more about what the National Archives is about.
2: That's great. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's super cool. Kind of, you mentioned this a little bit in uh, the answer to the previous question when we were talking about kind of how the Declaration of Independence uh, was stored in terms of the fact that Nick Cage, you know, took a screwdriver and tried to undo the bolts and stuff. In so in the film, uh, it suggests that when the Declaration's on display, it's stored in a case, you know, with a one-inch thick bulletproof glass and heat sensors and then when it's not on display that it's basically lowered into this four foot thick concrete steel plated vault right secured with electronic locks and a biometric security system I was wondering what you guys might be able to tell us about how the Declaration of Independence is stored and protected in real life as compared to what we see in
1: the film so unfortunately we can't tell you everything um because we are bound by a non-disclosure agreement. Sure. Um there is, you know, some information that we can share that is, you know, public knowledge about the encasement. And and Mark just told you about the um what's there is to see on exhibit at the uh, National Archives on the Mall. And we do have an exhibit that shows a cross section of the current encasement. Um, but we can't talk too much about what happens. Well, really can't say anything about what happens to the documents after hours and how they're stored. That's that's fair.
2: Uh <laughs> as a uh follow-up kind of uh to this since uh you know non-disclosure agreements and stuff, we uh Aubrey and I actually went on our own national treasure hunt a few years ago and we visited the Declaration of Independence. Um And kind of the reality of how old the document was really hit us when we saw that the ink was faded. Um, Do you anticipate that there might be a time when the ink will no longer be visible? And is this something that's kind of inevitable with certain documents?
1: So I would just first like to point out that, of course, you're not the only visitors to the National Archives who've commented on the poor condition of, of the declaration. Um, and, you know, the ink is, is no longer visible in, Mary, in many areas of the documents now, and it's really because in some places the ink just doesn't exist anymore, you know, and what you're seeing are just shadows of, you know, where the ink was, um, mm-hmm. you know, on, on the parchment. So, um, you know, I, th- I think the declaration, you know, had a tough history, you know, and, and how it was handled and exhibited and moved in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do hope to continue to, you know, to do our very best and maintain the current condition of, of the Declaration for years to come.
3: You probably noticed a huge contrast between the Declaration and the Constitution, which is only, you know, slightly younger, but in much better condition. So um, a lot of that has to do with um, there's some great articles about, uh, as Amy mentioned, the, the tough life the Declaration been through. Uh, besides just being rolled up from the bottom which damaged the signatures which are in, in the worst shape um, it was also exhibited for 30 or 35 years across uh, from a window so it was in sunlight at the old yeah. patent office uh, and that you know the, in the 1820s there were already concerns people were talking about the poor condition as early as the 1820s so um, it's not necessarily inevitable, but um, you know the the damage. Um, it's a combination of the the chemistry and uh, the those reactions coming on, but also handling is just as important, if not more important, in the history and how long things will last.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. Um, so. My next question is also very much about the film. This might fall in part of that NDA side of things, but I have to ask, or else our listeners wouldn't let me live it down. Um, So the other... piece that the the movie focuses on with regards to the archives and the declaration is the fact that there's this quote-unquote preservation room. So the film suggests that when the declaration or other important documents are going to undergo tests or restoration, it's taken to a a quote-unquote preservation room, which looks also to be climate controlled, but apparently according to the film has a lot less security. That's where they actually steal the document from. (laughs) And so Can you tell us if there's actually a quote-unquote preservation room and if so, how it's used or is that also kind of off-limits?
1: So there really are conservation laboratories located uh, at the National Archives building on the Mall in College Park, Maryland and in our um, facility in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, We don't call, you know, our laboratories preservation room um, per se. Um, but these spaces are certainly climate controlled um, and they are protected by physical security. I can confirm that. (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) Not
0: that, not that we're actually trying to steal the document or anything, but uh, these are some of the questions. I don't know if you've, you know, Googled the movie at all but there are really big cult fan communities for these films and these are the questions that keep coming up you know it's 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 how how legit is this portrayal etc and it's just it's fascinating uh, to us um so we are going to start wrapping up um our interview and so we really do have two bulk questions left here when we do these interviews for our show, we like to do a fun speed round type of vibe. And, and this time around, we thought it would be entertaining if we could quickly run through the list of things that happened to the Declaration of Independence during National Treasure, all of the probably uh, the sins in conservationism, if you will. And we're hoping you can tell us sort of top of mind, the immediate effect, if any, that these actions would have had on the document in real life, and I'm already gonna guess, you know, thank God this didn't actually happen to the document, but it sounds like the document had been pretty beat up in the past. So I'm gonna run through the list, let me know kind of top of mind, what impact would this, would this have? So first, the document was rolled up and stashed away in a poster tube
1: yes our favorite um so the declaration could easily get crushed and creased while it was rolled um, the ink could flake off of the surface and fall to the ink to the bottom of the storage tube and we would r- result in permanent loss
0: Eek, that is a that's a rough start okay so then the document is shaken up in that poster tube
1: <laughs> so again the vulnerable edges of the parchment could get crushed distorted Um, Any previous repairs that were made um, along the edges uh, would be compromised. We'd risk loss of ink again.
0: Okay. Next, our protagonists unroll the document with white gloves onto a kitchen table.
1: So the white gloves uh, would be a nice gesture, um, but we Mm -hmm. prefer to handle documents with clean, bare hands um any food of course or drink remnants that were on the table from this morning's breakfast would now be on the on the document and it could stain it it could um those residues could attract pests in the future oof okay
0: so next while we are still at the kitchen table the document is wetted with lemon juice
3: by a trained conservator i you should mention
1: (laughs) true
0: fair (laughs) (laughs) that's fair
1: So introducing moisture to uh, parchment could cause uneven wetting of the surface, staining, distortions. Um, The lemon juice itself would leave a sticky residue. Again, it could attract um, pests, dust, dirt to the document.
0: Okay, next, it is heated with a hairdryer.
1: So the heat could cause distortions and possibly shrinkage, especially if it's first wetted with the lemon juice.
0: Oh my goodness, okay.
3: And as part of the treatment for the documents, they were very slowly humidified to, I believe it was 45% RH, and that was a long process that took weeks, if not months, uh, very controlled, so done very slowly. So, yeah, abrupt changes like that on parchment are not, not good.
0: Ugh. Okay, so the last one here, um, it is unrolled once again, this time with bare hands, um, but we are in Independence Hall and Trinity Church, so we're all over the place here.
1: So we we wonder what's on the surfaces that it's coming into contact with and, and what's transferring to the document, um, how dirty those bare hands are, and of course we do not need another handprint on the declaration. Oh my gosh! So yeah,
3: um, and Independence Hall is a historic building. I don't know if they've installed air conditioning there. If they have temperature and humidity control, that's probably a secondary uh, issue compared to the handling. But if if they do it during the winter and it's very dry out, then and they don't have humidity control, then that increases the risk of uh, physical
0: damage. Okay. Point point taken. Um, I am yeah, not I in. To- I was just going to say, I'm not in your line of work, but I am cringing here based on everything yeah. you've just shared. Yeah, and
2: Amy, at the beginning, you know, you said the first the first rolling up and putting it in the poster tube is what gets you to cringe, and then after that, everything else is just kind of, it doesn't bother you as much. I find that amazing, because I was, I think you could see Aubrey and I's faces as you were saying all this, It was you were cringing more and more as it was going on. Yeah. Oh. So, With that, I think there's uh, really only kind of one last follow-up question that we uh, have for you guys as we look to wrap up this uh, episode. And that is, from your perspective at the National Archives, what do you guys hope that viewers of National Treasure take away from the film regarding historical documents? Something like, will they have a greater appreciation for the documents? Or... Maybe you'd like them to, you know, take everything that they see, given how they handle the documents in the film, with a grain of salt. Um, What is it that you guys really hope they take from
1: this? So I hope that it leaves uh, viewers of the film with a newfound curiosity about original records and uh, lets them know that they exist, uh, how much they can teach us. And, you know, really, I know we touched on this earlier, but how exciting they are to see firsthand mm-hmm. in person at archives, libraries and museums.
3: I would echo that. And, um, you know, I, I think I would read something recently about how um, one author characterized them as almost scripture and that, you know, they're presented in the rotunda with uh, these murals that, depict the founding fathers like Gods on Olympus and um, I hope that maybe it um, it encourages people to learn a little more about the archives and that um, you know there there's a story behind them There are real people behind them, and uh they're not just uh, something you go and see and then and then leave um, so we we've got wonderful. Wonderful connections to people's lives at the archives, and uh, there's a lot more to what we do than just just the charters.
0: Well said. You know, we try to encourage folks to visit the archives as much as we can because of our love for for the films, and and really, it was the our love for these films that inspired us to go on this deep dive into everything the films present to the viewer and it's been a really fascinating conversation that you've allowed us to have with you here today to learn more about this very important aspect of the film. It's critical to the plot, right? We talk a lot in um, these episodes about how this is about a treasure hunt, this film, but it's, almost like the treasure comes second to the declaration itself and how much time is spent planning the heist and at the archives performing the heist and everything. So, um, we're glad that, that the, from your perspective, the hope is that more people take an appreciation because that's certainly what's happened for us. So we're just two, two people, but, you know, we have a really fun online community who we think Uh, believes the same. So Amy and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. We've really appreciated having you.
1: Thank Thank you. you very much. Thank
3: you. My pleasure.
0: All right, there you have it. Our interview with Amy and Mark from the National Archives. Thank you again to the two of them for being such amazing sports and giving us such awesome information during this interview. Um, I definitely learned a lot. Emily, I know you must have really enjoyed hearing about so many different scientific techniques that they use in, in historical document preservation.
2: Oh, my goodness. I think my favorite part was when he started talking about the gas chromatography Uh, I geeked out a little bit because I was like I know exactly what that is yes some of our listeners might not but I totally know (laughs) what it is it was amazing
0: yeah that was really neat Um, I personally still can't stop thinking about how that story Mark told about the altered Lincoln pardon is basically the plot of National Treasure 2 oh
2: my gosh Uh, that like so wild that know, that even happened
0: now i know how conspiracy theories start let's just let's just leave it at that right um but that was that was a really fun conversation before we we wrap up here there was one other thing i think that we should do for our listeners you know um our two guests noted that There was only so much they could legally say about (laughs) how the Declaration of Independence, but also the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are physically stored, especially in comparison to what we see in the National Treasure film. They mentioned the fact that there are some publicly available documents that talk a little bit about this. So Emily and I, I did some reading and found some of this publicly available information from the Washington Post, DCS, as well as Atlas Obscura, and we wanted to tell you a little bit about what we found before we wrap up the episode. So, First things first, when these founding charters, the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, are on display in the rotunda of the National Archives, they are in fact stored under bulletproof glass. And that glass also has a protective coating to protect the documents from ultraviolet light. And inside of that display case, um, perhaps unsurprisingly based on the conversation we just had, The temperature and the humidity are kept constant and apparently the environment in that case is actually helium, which is an inert gas.
2: So we also found that in 1987, NARA installed a three million, yes that is correct, a three million dollar camera monitoring system in order to keep watch over the condition of all three documents. Now this system is able to detect changes in readability, mainly due to ink flaking, fading, and so much more. And I hope it would be able to do all that given that it costs $3 million. (laughs)
0: And I mean, that was in 1987. I'm sure what they have now is even more elaborate, quite frankly. Now, what you really want to know, if you're National Treasure fans like us, is what happens at night or when the document is not on display, as Riley so eloquently explains in our favorite film. So it turns out that every single night, the three founding charter documents are lowered into a custom-built armored vault. Now, the original vault was constructed way back in 1953. It was the size of a walk-in closet, and it rested about 20 feet beneath the display cases in the archives rotunda. However, in the early 2000s, the vault was reconstructed, and this is probably where Amy and Mark had to kind of keep their lips zipped because information about this vault renovation is pretty much kept under lock and key today.
2: Yeah, and you know, it seems like in the movie, the National Treasure's description of the Declaration of Independence project- protection system is closely reminiscent of the original vault system. But it's possible that it also could be well resemble the current one it at least we know it at least partially does right even with the limited mm-hmm. information we have
0: absolutely so that's pretty exciting i think and, and maybe dare i say a fun way to end the first season of the national treasure hunt podcast it has been a ride for these first 10 episodes
2: Woo, guys it has been a Time And can I just say, I was skeptical about, you know, sharing our love for this film, I guess this film franchise, really. It's something that, you know, we've always been very passionate about in our private lives. And I guess a little publicly when we occasionally would tweet about it before. But (laughs) I was very skeptical about You know, putting this out there, thinking that nobody else could possibly like these movies as much as we do. And you guys have all proven me so wrong. You have been so incredibly supportive and engaging during our first season. And we just really want to thank you guys for coming on this incredible journey with us.
0: And the journey is not over yet. Season two of the National Treasure Hunt podcast is coming your way in January 2021, okay? So make sure that you hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure that our new episodes arrive on your phone without you even having to think about it as soon as they become available in the new year. We're excited about it. We hope you're excited about it. And we hope that in the meantime, over our brief hiatus, you will continue to engage with us on social media. Recall that you'll find us on Twitter and Instagram at N.T. Hunt Podcast. And you know what, Em? I'm thinking we might have some fun content to share during the hiatus too, so...
2: I think so too, but guys, I'd just like to point out that it's only the first season, and she's already taking my bit. I mean, I'm oh, the your one social that does media? the social media <laughs> call callouts. So, I I don't know. We might have to have a reckoning before season two begins. Or we, we won't change up the format too much on you guys. I know that that's that can be a little jarring to the ears. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Well, once again, we hope you enjoyed this special episode of our show. We look forward to engaging with you on social media soon, but until then, I'm Aubrey.
2: And I'm Emily.
0: And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. (laughs)